I was talking with someone in my neighborhood this past week, and surprisingly, the topic of conversation um, uh, turned to the upcoming election. Are you surprised? And she said to me, um, I'm so tired of politics, I just want next Tuesday to be over. And that sentiment probably describes a lot of us after months and months of a presidential election dominating the news on radio, television, and internet, we begin to experience kind of election fatigue. And maybe because politics is not an emotionally neutral topic, it has the power to divide us, uh, oftentimes more than bring us together. But as I was thinking about this Sunday, um, I, was, I was wondering what it would look like if Christians filtered their politics through their faith, rather than filtering our faith through our politics. Uh, many of you came here today expecting to hear the final two installments of our teaching series called Something Greater. But I'm going to save those final two messages for the next two weekends. And instead today I've decided to call an audible, uh, like I learned to do playing quarterback on a football team many years ago. And I want to talk about how Christ followers can anticipate this coming Tuesday in a spirit of faith and hope. Now, I know the air just went all out of the room, but it'll be okay, I promise. I promise. But uh, it is the topic of the week, and next week we'll get back to the last couple of stories in the life of Elisha, the prophet in 2 Kings. But let's join in a moment of prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for this fellowship. I pray today that people understand that this is not a day about politics, but about our call to be light in a world of darkness and salt in a world of decay. I pray that we understand that the example we set with our lives is far more powerful in influencing our society in a Christian direction than whatever we might do on Tuesday. So meet us in this time together. Let your spirit and your presence be with us as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us spend many hours each week watching television or listening to the radio. In 18th century New England, however, the most important form of public verbal communication was the weekly sermon at church. People read newspapers and pamphlets, but they heard hundreds of sermons. Um, the average weekly churchgoer, and most people attended regularly in those days, listened to over 7,000 sermons in their lifetime. Unlike sermons in the Church of England, which were supposed to please and inspire people, New England Congregationalists were more practical, and they argued that a good sermon was to inform and convince so in colonial New England, the words of the preacher carried great influence. Not only did pastors in each town preach every Sunday, but in keeping with the belief that all human activity falls under the jurisdiction of God's word, sermons were preached at significant public events as well as Sundays, things like anniversaries or Thanksgiving Day or fast days and even, yes, election day. Published colonial sermons show that most ministers did not mix religion and politics on the average Sunday. However, when they were asked to preach on election day, that sermon was different. In Massachusetts in the mid-18th century, election day was a, 
a colony-wide holiday. It began with firing the cannons and military exercises, and then usually some form of procession of government officials from the seat of government to a nearby church. And these politically and socially important members of the community listened carefully for several hours to the sermon that day. Election Day sermons followed a typical pattern. First, they asserted that civil government is founded on an agreement between God and the people to establish political systems that promote the common good. Scripture affirms that government is necessary, but we know that no system is perfect, so voters and rulers were told that they must do what is needed for the good of all. Secondly, the people were encouraged to promise to follow those they had elected, and rulers were were to promise to act for the good of all the citizens. As long as rulers acted in their proper character, people were to obey. Um, On the other hand, if rulers acted contrary to the terms of the agreement, people were duty-bound to resist. So in all civic functions, all civic actions, voters and rulers were charged to promote virtue and suppress vice and support people of proven wisdom, integrity, justice, and holiness. So as we approach Election Day 2016, Christ followers might still do well to measure our actions by those criteria. Now, I may mention some contemporary political and social issues this morning, but I want you to know that a few things will be off limits. Specifically, I won't mention any candidate, any particular party, or contemporary political figure. I'm not going to mention my own party affiliation or preferences, but I will talk about how Christ followers can make a difference on Tuesday. Christianity is in part an intellectual exercise, and we are called to love God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind. And we come to church to glorify God. God gave each of us an absolutely incredible brain that does something like 20 trillion calculations every second. And we glorify God when we engage and stimulate our brains and have a focus on how we can be more like Jesus in the world today, as opposed to stressing about an upcoming election. I want you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. On the night of July 4th, 1776. July 4th, 1776. In London, England, King George III made the following entry into his diary. Nothing important happened today. Now, telecommunications would not come into existence until 1836, and no transatlantic cables would be laid until 1866. Hence, he had no way of knowing what had taken place that day in the city of Philadelphia. 
On that day, 56 courageous men pledged their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor to support a declaration that read in part as follows. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now the importance of this event was profound, not only in an historical and political sense, but also in a biblical sense. Some of the signers of this document were Christians, some were not. However, the ideas set forth in the Declaration of Independence as well as our Constitution represent the closest attempt in the modern world to institute a biblical form of government. These ideas have a profound biblical basis. The intent of our founding documents was to severely limit the size and scope of the federal government. Now you may be asking, why should Christians care about any of this? Because hope in the government and hope in kings and princes and presidents are false hopes. In the words of Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Jesus did not have a political agenda. He wasn't a left-winger or a right-winger. I seriously doubt if he would have joined your party or my party, or vote for your candidate or my candidate. Any attempt to fit Jesus into our political box trivializes his name. I see a lot of Christians today that are very enamored with political candidates and obsessed with getting those candidates elected, and I guess activism has its place. But the Bible doesn't talk about winning elections, or if we elect the right people and if we pass the right laws, we will eventually arrive at this utopian society. In fact, the Bible seems to imply that the more we entangle ourselves with the kingdoms of this world, the more we become like the world in the worst sort of way. You see, many of the kingdoms of this world operate through brute force and the threat of force. Others through deceit and regulation, and, and, and we either do as the government says or its agents will fine us or tax us or jail us or even kill us. Mao Zedong, former chairman of the Communist Party in China, who was very proficient at killing people, put it this way, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Jesus' kingdom, on the other hand, is not of this world. In John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus didn't operate by means of force. He taught with authority. The philosopher Hannah Arendt differentiated power and authority this way. Power is the ability to force compliance with one's demands. Authority is the ability to command voluntary obedience. Jesus initiated force one time when he kicked the money changers out of the temple. There was no political or social agenda attached to that. He just wanted to rid the temple of people who were using it for ungodly purposes. Now, in recent years, I've seen numerous churches and ministries absolutely poisoned by political partner, uh, 
partisanship. Consider these two quotes from R.J. Rummel, who's Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Hawaii. Power kills. Absolute power kills absolutely. During the 20th century, 170 million men, women, and children have been shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, or worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hung, bombed, or killed in any other of the myriad ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless citizens and foreigners. And here's his point. When you let the people do whatever they want, you get chaos. When you let governments do whatever they want, you get totalitarianism. And that is exactly why Christians need to care about government in general and keep a watchful eye on whoever is in power. During the build-up to World War II, some of Hitler's biggest support came from Christians who were seduced into relinquishing their liberties and giving him unlimited power. So what is the connection between the Bible and America's founding? First of all, let me give you an oversimplification of the philosophy inherent in our founding documents. The documents uh, of our founding uh, in this country talk about a god. And he's not the god of the deists who believe that God made the world and then just moseyed on his way. The Declaration of Independence speaks of a creator. It speaks of nature's God who takes an active interest in human affairs and they appealed in the documents to the supreme judge of the world and they relied on the protection of divine providence. Now this creator then endows us with certain unalienable rights. In other words, we all have a right to life. And liberty is a gift from God, not a privilege of government. Government exists to protect these rights. And the powers delegated to the federal government ought to be, in Madison's words, few and defined. And when we let government overstep its bounds, we place ourselves in grave danger. What I'm trying to point out is this. The biblical roots of the principles set forth in these documents are profound. And all of them find their roots in the pages of Scripture. The separation of powers into three co-equal government branches has its roots in Isaiah The First Amendment has its roots in Daniel and the book of Acts. The immunity of churches from taxation has its its roots in the Old Testament book of Ezra. The Second Amendment has its roots in 1 Samuel and in Proverbs and in Luke. And the Bill of Rights, which is actually a bill of prohibitions on Uncle Sam, is really the golden rule applied to politics. The Fourth Amendment with its requirement of search warrants, the Fifth Amendment and the whole issue of self-incrimination being forced to testify against yourself, the Sixth Amendment which deals with jury trials and the rights of the accused find their roots in Scripture, the Eighth Amendment and its prohibition against cruel and unjust punishment, the Ninth Amendment which protects our right to do all kinds of things as long as we don't harm each other, and the Tenth Amendment which forbids governments from Uh, engaging in any activity not specifically authorized elsewhere in the Constitution. All of these parts of the nation's Constitution find their roots in biblical concepts and ideas. So how are we to live today as followers of Jesus Christ? How can we influence our society for the better even in the midst of a tumultuous political climate and a culture that today seems to tear down Christian values and want to separate faith from government. We open this morning with a passage of scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did not preach this 
message to a group of politically and economically powerful people at the National Prayer Breakfast. He preached it to common, simple people in a forgotten backwater town of the Roman Empire. There's no doubt that the culture of Jesus' day had all kinds of sin and vice and corruption and debauchery. It wasn't a lot different than our world today. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says that the culture of his day had not even changed much from several thousand years earlier in the days of Noah. So we go back to Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 6, and we can read, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The Roman Empire during the time of Jesus was about as corrupt and immoral as any time in history. And many people see some of those same patterns of behaviors in our world today. And yet we never hear Jesus or the Apostle Paul or anyone else talking about mobilizing Christian voters to take back Rome. We hear Jesus instead telling us to be faithful and to pay attention because what this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. And one of these days, Jesus says, he will return to earth and he'll deal with all the sinfulness. He'll deal with the corruption. In the meantime, I do believe Christians should care about the moral and political and spiritual climate of our nation. And I believe we should vote and we should keep a careful and discerning eye on worldly governments. America needs the Christian voice to be heard. However, voting is not our only means of changing society. In a recent sermon, Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church in Alfreda, Georgia, challenged adults in the church who are basing their faith on a political system and not on Jesus. And he said this, many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason is you've begun to fix your eyes on a political system and you're growing weary and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why, because you're scaring our children. Stanley went on to encourage adults in his church to show the younger generation how to have a powerful faith in God. He said, you need to model for the next generation that God is in control and that God can be trusted. He also said it's good to get involved in politics and culture and society, but never, ever fix your eyes there. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. Recently, I did a series of workshops for the Grand Traverse District churches on how to reach younger generation people in their communities. And one of the things I talked about uh, was the big shift in our, how unchurched and minimally churched people today think, at least actually the last 15 to 20 years. And the word we use is postmodernism, and it's gotten a deep toehold in our culture. In case you're wondering what that word means, it encompasses a broad range of ideas and meanings. But it typically is defined as an attitude of skepticism or distrust toward traditional ways of thinking and being, toward cultural uh, ideas, toward institutions, especially the church, and sometimes even government, toward things like the Bible and the whole no notion of absolute truth. 
Postmodernism asserts that truth and morality is whatever humans decide it is in our context, not something that's handed down to us by our Creator. Truth is relative. Every religion and every idea has equal value. And the only thing that matters is what I think and what I feel and what I experience. Is it any wonder that we're seeing narcissism reach epidemic proportions? And that, and that we have a tendency to rely more on secular government than we do on God. The generation that's coming along behind us is going to take their cues from us. And here's the cue we're giving them. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person elected to office, it's the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy tomorrow, it's the end of the world. If we don't bring back the 1950s, it's the end of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. Government matters. Policies matter. The selection of things like Supreme Court justices matter. But none of these matter as much as men and women who understand the word faith. We need to model a behavior for the next generation that clearly says God is in control. I wonder what would happen if Christ followers spent as much time reading God's word and living by faith and praying for our nation as the amount of time we spend ranting about our politics and other issues of the day on Facebook. The first three words of the United States Constitution are we the people. That means us. It means the nation will reflect who we are. Do we even know what the Bible teaches on issues of marriage or the sanctity of human life or our responsibility to refugees, just to name a few of the hot-button issues of our day? Do we vote based on biblically informed opinions or who the media tells us we should vote for or our union or our family? See, John chapter 18, verse 36 tells us that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And the Apostle Paul reminds us again of that in Philippians chapter 3, that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. The kingdoms of this world operate from the top down and from the outside in. They compel behavior through force, through taxation, and other kinds of government control. And ultimately, they do what's best for government. But the kingdom of God influences our lives through the Holy Spirit. And it works through moral conviction. And it changes our lives from the inside out. And while it lacks the glamour and allure of the kingdoms of this world, it has far more powerful influence on human behavior. And it has a profound result on society when we live that out. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells us not to exercise self-righteous power over people but instead be their servant. In John chapter 13, Jesus, who is the king of the universe, washes the disciples' feet as a model of the lifestyle that we are to live, he, the servant lifestyle. The Christian life is not glamorous. The real dirty fingernail work of Christianity is not going to ever make the headlines. It's not about electing people to office and elevating them to totally undue levels of power and glory. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 8, verse 4, God rebukes the nation of Israel, saying, They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. 
in the first century Roman, uh, first century Roman officials said to the Emperor Hadrian about the Christians they had encountered. And I want you to listen uh, to how uh, one of these officials describes this odd bunch of people. He says, they love one another. They never fail to help the widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give it away freely to people who have nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and happy and are happy as they, uh, to welcome him as a real brother. You see, even though Christianity was an outlaw religion in Jesus' day, this did not stop Christians from setting a noble example by the way they lived. So let me ask you this morning, what example are you setting with your life? Are, are, we, are we actively in pursuit of godliness? Does our life radiate the fruits of the... God's spirit like love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And do people see in us, do they see us setting an example that others will want to emulate? You see, Christ followers influence our world from the bottom up, not the top down. We influence the world from the grassroots. It's not glamorous, but this is how God has chosen to work. And we will need to do a lot more in the days and years ahead if we want the kind of nation that values the ethics of Jesus. It just may be that the best thing we can do in the next couple of days is to shut off the TV and the radio and give our Facebook feeds a break and stop reading the newspaper and sit down with the Bible and read that for a while and let God speak to our hearts. Do that for a month or so and See how much clearer your thinking will be. In 2 Timothy 1.7, the Apostle Paul says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is stepping forward and doing what we're called to do in spite of our fear. We're made to be salt and light in this world. God has put us in this place and at this point in history and in our current set of circumstances to, for a reason. And it's all part of his divine plan. And Jesus promised in John 16 that in him, in him, we'll have peace. Not in government, but in him. Because no matter what goes on in this life, we can be assured that Jesus has already overcome the world. And no matter who wins or who loses on Tuesday, God will still be in control of his universe come Wednesday morning. Let me close with the words of Kyle Eidelman, who's Kyle's pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And he says, we can't control God. God wasn't nominated or appointed or elected. He can't be impeded. He can't be voted out of office. God's reign is, is universal, and his term is eternal. His plan is in place, and his agenda is secure. God cannot be manipulated or labeled. He's too big for that. God is not a capitalist or a socialist. He's not a Democrat or a Republican. No one can claim him. Everyone wants to say God's on our side, but God is on his own side. He doesn't, doesn't need us to make him famous. He doesn't need us to convince people that he's creative and he's cool. 
He sits enthroned in heaven, so we can't restrain his will. We can't restrict his power. We can't limit his jurisdiction. And after an election, God has never said, whoa, didn't see that one coming. God doesn't work that way. His decisions don't get overturned. He is above all, he is through all, and he is in all. He is always present, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful. God moves kings and queens and the entire nations like a pawn on a chessboard. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together because he is God. You know, our next president can do a lot of things, but that person cannot make us a better person. He or she cannot change our hearts. The only way for true change to occur is through an abiding daily reliance on Jesus Christ. So this Tuesday and every day, we are called to carry his light into a world of darkness, and we are called to place our faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day and for this church. I pray we have been reminded today about the importance of having a biblical worldview and of being light in a world of darkness and salt in a world of decay. And that no matter what happens on Tuesday, the real work of influencing our society consists of the examples that we set in our daily lives. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.